creating a place where people feel welcome, they don't feel judged, they feel connected to people, they have growing sense of confidence. Who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name's Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. Today, I'm really delighted to welcome entrepreneur Tessie Britton, who I've known for many years as a designer. And two years ago, she founded and is now CEO of the Participatory Cities Foundation, which is a five-year research and development program that has raised very significant funding to boost cohesion, health, equality, happiness, safety, sustainability, and innovation in cities through peer-to-peer citizen co-creation. Their first big project is called Everyone Every Day and is based in Barking and Dagenham in East London and is already having an amazing impact on the lives of people in that part of the city. I should disclose that I'm a trustee of the Participatory Cities Foundation and a big advocate for what they're doing. Underneath her softly spoken and thoughtful words lie some really bold and transformative ideas which I'm excited to share in this episode. So my first question to Tessie when we met up recently was to ask her to explain in her own words what a participatory city is and why it's important. Enjoy. I think that the kind of positive cities that we would like to live in actually require a lot of us to live differently day to day and to do so much more sociably and to do many more practical contributions to the neighbourhoods we live in. And most places don't actually have the tools to do that. So the kind of participatory city we're trying to develop here in Barking Dagenham means that people who have ideas or who are worried about the future can actually wake up in the morning and actually have the tools and the support that they can actually take the right size actions in the right way that suits them. What's the problem that you're solving? You know, what what doesn't exist in Barking and Dagenham or indeed in other cities at the moment? So I think of the way that we've tried to tackle problems before has been in a very a siloed way. So we very often tackle problems through specialist professional services of one kind or another. But there are a lot of problems which I think are related to how connected or how uh, how networked we are and how much social capital there is in a, in a particular neighbourhood. And there's all sorts of research, tons and tons of research, in fact, which show that anything from health to safety to environment issues, etc., they all benefit from residents working together as in a peer-to-peer supportive network. And so the, the kind of tools that we're putting in at residents' disposal are very, very practical things so that if people have an idea which would bring even small groups together to, to work on things, some of them aren't necessarily problem related some of them are just activating their creativity whether that's for designing new things or making new things or or growing things any number of ideas that people might want to work on 
uh, we're, we're providing the support that enables them to do that really quickly. So the shops that we have in, in Barking Dagenham, we'll have five high street shops and each of those serve as a kind of a project incubator. And our team are there to help people to design those projects and those opportunities to be really inclusive. Many citizens don't normally think about inclusivity when they're designing things. So we kind of build in inclusivity principles to how we do that. And the, the platform provides them with insurances and materials so that they can start testing things really quickly. So those are the kind of tools. We, we're very hands-on, very practical mm. type of projects. It's really interesting that you're building social capital. How would you describe what that is that you're, you're giving people? It's really just networks of friendship and, and learning where people know each other and trust each other. And the more diverse, the more bridging that is between different types of demographics and types of people from different cultures or ages, the more positive those networks are. So social capital can also be with groups of people who very like each other. And that has some benefits and also some cons because that can create cliques and tribalism Mm. types of things. The more diverse groups of people that you can bring together that know and trust each other, you get many more benefits to including things like idea sharing and learning. Um, But also one of the really big things that we're tackling overall really is the sort of co-social cohesion issue. Mm. And this the situation we're finding ourselves now around polarization of opinion and cultures, we're trying to use these projects as a really quite an elaborate excuse for people to get into a room and get to know each other and be mm. friends. Can you give tell a story of one person or a group of people, some groups of people that you've brought together and what they've done? And Well, I guess the, um, the interesting thing that we've done about 160 in-depth interviews over the last few weeks, mm. and, and I think one of the, the areas that I found was, was most interesting is that there's a picture being painted through these interviews of people who are reconstructing their lives through this social practical activity and when I say rebuilding their lives we've got lots and lots of examples where people are isolated at home for one reason or another whether it's um, a loss of job or a loss of health and people or loss of confidence people have social anxiety people who are very isolated and quite trapped and looking out into the world and seeing very few opportunities for them to actually start re-engaging with it. And what is so incredible about some of the things that people have said in the interviews is that they are literally taking our newspaper and the program and actually building their weeks around what they're going to do with different different people and in different parts of the borough. And seeing that as something that they're self-directing, they're not having a professional advise them that they... Mm-hmm. They do that. So I think that's one of the things which is really exciting about it. And also that so many people have described that it's making them feel really, really excited about their lives again Mm. and that they are being exposed to ideas and having opportunities to work on things and be in contact with with a much broader range of ideas from outside the borough and inside the borough. Um, And that's really pleasing to hear. So the sorts of things that people are doing together... Cooking, gardening, there's a whole long list of things that you offer. I don't know, yeah, just give a a snapshot of the sorts of things people are doing. Batch cooking, growing, wormeries, recycling plastic. They are also very engaged. We have a large group of people engaged in collaborative business programs where we're helping them in a very inclusive way. People who don't even have an idea or or a skill, but who, who want to start developing a new kind of livelihood are involved in prototyping and designing food products or collaborative childcare projects. So there's there's almost there's a full range of um, as many different ideas as there are people. So the, the ad- ideas are coming from them. 
Yeah, mm. but um, they're coming from everywhere. So that's one of the things that we are doing differently is that we are, we're not precious about ideas and where they come from. Mm. So they can come from, it can be in a co-design session where a resident might have come in and said something quite vague or something quite specific and then other residents might join them. Our team might add ideas. Mm. And so, and they might come from the other side of the world. Mm. Um, but as long as it is useful and it's energizing and exciting for, for people that want to do it here, mm. it doesn't actually matter where the idea comes from. So how do you know where to focus? You know, a city or a part of a city like Barking and Dagenham is a, is a very complex thing. You know, literally all life is here. People's yeah. personal lives, their work lives, their social lives. So you literally could do almost anything with anyone, but, you know, in a time-limited, budget-limited kind of program of work, yeah. how do you decide where to invest your your time and efforts to really have the maximum impact? We don't decide which ideas should work or not. We do work to a particular model. It needs to be practical and beneficial, and it, to, it needs to be done on an equal footing and to be inclusive. So things that uh, you would normally see other types of participation, such as challenge protesting and campaigning we don't do that we don't do anything which is a charity model where some people are doing things for people who are less fortunate than them we try to do everything on an equal footing mm. the ideas the ideas come from everywhere but we are working to a particular model which we think will help to create a really inclusive ecosystem of projects and activities you know that people can plug into but mm. which is kind of largely absent in most places so where did how did that model come about was it inspired by your experiences in a particular place or set of places? The background really is that this is a citizen-designed model that has been popping up in various cities more and more frequently over the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, many of them have a, have a longer history around co-ops and, and things like that. But more and more we saw people in neighbourhoods working outside of it, the existing participation systems they were essentially using a very different design model than we usually do. So if, you, so if you're designing a product or a service, you normally start with a very specific problem and then you generate a whole set of ideas which might help that problem. You pin it down to one or two and then you execute it. It's a, You're doing a pinpoint to product design mm. to help a very specific problem. And what we saw more and more um, with citizens designing was that they was that they were looking at what they had and, and saying, what can we do with this and how can we make it useful? And they were looking at the, the problems much more broadly. So actually saying, we want to make this a better neighborhood, um, but weren't being that specific. So with this design model, what you end up with is many, many small things working together to work on that sort of overarching things. So it's not just one thing that you're creating. Mm. So it's a sort of a distributed problem-solving mechanism, but it's based on people's talents. So you're not starting with the problem. You're starting with what, what resources you have. That's and interesting. Some, mm. yeah. So you're not reinventing the wheel. Um, you're, yeah, you're looking at the system, the network, the, the community that yeah. exists yeah. and just you know creating connections where there weren't previously. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And also I think that there are a few other examples, um, notable examples where people have stopped thinking about one program or one service as being a, a sort of silver bullet mm. and that in places um, an ecosystem of activities and projects and services all need to work together mm. rather than just trying to have one one thing that's going to solve one problem. Yeah, no silver bullet. So can you give... So what are some of those notable examples that you're thinking of? 
Um, so one of them is the Civic Commons project in, in the US, um, where they have invested, I think, in about seven cities. And they're trying to inject resources into into public, what they describe as amenities like libraries, parks, and so on, um, but ecosystems of activity which they believe should be in the commons and are really vital for maintaining the the social fabric of that kind of um, the connections between people and places. There's another project which the Astor Gates has been doing in Chicago. And again, it's looking at a, creating an ecosystem of activities and spaces which kind of all contribute towards making these places safe and creative and cohesive. And a lot of these are also involve citizen participation, some of it in how they live their everyday lives, which is the emphasis that we have. It's not, we're trying not to create a participation system which is extraordinary or heroic. We want to make it so easy that the way you live your life every day is actually contributing to make it Mm. um, different. So obviously the division between public commons, as you describe it, and kind of the privatisation of places and spaces is different here in the UK than it is in the US. Mm. How are you trying to create more public space than currently exists? And what's the optimum? The cynic might say, is this kind of communism by stealth or socialism at scale? What's the balance between public and private, would you say? I think that this isn't driven by philosophy. Um, I think it's driven by practicality. I don't know what the right balance is, but I do know that we've got too little of it at the moment Mm. because um, what we have is this growing inequality and more and more people being left behind. Some people don't like that term. But But the idea that... At the moment, the the public service is really there as seen as a safety net to help people in need. And actually what we're missing is a public provision which enables people to contribute and to bring their talents mm. and for them to develop themselves and their and their livelihoods and their future to create personal mobility, social mobility. And that is completely absent as far as I'm concerned mm. at the moment. The way that we've, we've arranged or organized society is that everything is privatized to a point where as long as you can afford to buy stuff, you're fine. And if you can't, then we have a, a huge growing number of people who are um, not involved in that economy. And inclusion into an economy and into society more broadly is absolutely vital. Or we're just going to continue down this track we are of polarization of mm. economies. And the difference in economy is one of the reasons cited for this great right-wing swing that we're experiencing at the Mm -hmm. moment. People feel threatened economically. At the same time, we've got this enormous global migration, which is not going to stop. So I think that we need to find different and new infrastructures which enable people to come together and learn from each other and be together in a way which is practical and helpful and isn't too demanding or too intellectual. So that's interesting. So it's not just sort of rebalancing between public and private. It's also reframing and redirecting perhaps some of the the role that the public sphere plays yeah. from being a safety net to being an enabler. Yeah, that- yeah. To to put tools and resources at people's disposal, and also I think that the the emphasis on there's been decades worth of discussion about where the power goes and what democracy means. Mm. But largely, the assumption in most of those discussions is around 
how do you influence the power which is actually held by by government or by commerce mm. and i think that what has been absent is talking about the power of doing things to make a difference and shaping places so mm. we've now got thousands of people in barking dagenham who are doing things which i think are fundamentally changing what it's like to live here. Mm. The stuff that's coming through in the interviews is very much about creating a place where people feel welcome, they don't feel judged, they feel connected to people, they have growing sense of confidence. Who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? Mm. So um, I think, and they're creating it themselves. So we're a platform which enables that, but it's that element of it is being created between them. Um, yes, we make them feel welcome. Of course we do, but they make each other feel welcome. Mm. I think that this is missing everywhere. Um, I think it's something which we've we've started to take for granted that along with capitalism and so on, that these will be natural side effects and we'll deal with it with a few mm. little bit of services on the side. And actually it's fundamentally asking whether this is the right way to organize society. Mm. hesitate to ask about this because it's sort of ancient history now but in the UK we had a flurry around the big society kind of 10 years ago or so some of what you're saying seems to have Mm. resonances with some of that the kind of big society thing didn't quite work as it was originally conceived conceived (laughs) so I'm just curious why you think that is and how how what you're doing is different I think big society conception of a society where people were contributing um, is a very um, comparable um, to, to what we're we're talking about, the the reality is, I think, in big society was that it was still a top down a top down effort to get people to give more to save the state money, hmm. and I think the motivation for that, whenever that is present and it's present everywhere, is really transparent to to citizens. Hmm. What's the what's the longer term model that could sit around this? Um, so away from I don't know, government grants, you know, uh, rechanneling ultimately taxation revenue through to charging for services. And, you know, um, are you trying to create a kind of third space between kind of public safety net and kind of privatization of services? I think that the potential that that exists in Barking Dagnum is is quite unique in mm. that I think the potential is to to reconfigure the whole system. So we have a, a council who are doing innovative steps taking innovative steps themselves on services and being more person-centered on on how that works. The model that I can see emerging is that if at the very center of this new system is people who live here and their talents and then have building an ecosystem which reconnects in a very different way around that rather than it being about people with needs. I think that we've got a very good picture of what that might look like Mm. um, in the future. We do like to think in terms of political or philosophical things, but actually this for me is very much a design, it's a technical challenge. Mm. And we're doing it in an iterative way and we're doing it with the people that live here and we're doing it emergently. And Mm. I think that that process, the way we're doing it will end up being a very different system, but one which will have been tried and tested all the way through. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's really just a reorganization of systems just to be more inclusive of everybody and to not waste um, what resources are here. 
mean, if you took Barking Dagenham, just as an example, I'm sure most places are like this, that we have, this is such a resource-rich borough, you know, in terms of parks, swimming pools, schools, services, all, in all sorts of ways, it has enormous amounts of resource. It also has 200,000 people with talents and ideas which are potentially not being used for the public or the common good. And so our job really is trying to connect all of those resources into something which really boosts the outcomes for 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 places, including for individual people. Mm. Yeah, I like that being sort of talent-led rather than needs-led. And mm. you said earlier, sort of, about, it's about building the system rather than focusing on pinpoint problem mm. solutions to individual problems. I know it's still early days for what you're doing, but there's really positive, you know, positive mm. momentum building. Um, if you could sort of dream big, where, where's this leading now in the next few years in the work that you're doing mm. in Barking and Dagenham and potentially beyond yeah. that? We're developing a few projects outside of the UK. We're also talking to people in Scotland about doing similar projects. I personally would love to see the whole of London have a participatory platform. And I have worked out the numbers already. It's 0.04% of the 2017 public spending would get you a public participation ecosystem across the whole of London. 0.04% of... It's something like, it would cost probably between 40 and 50 million a year. But in terms of public spending, which is X billion, it's it's a very small percentage. It's almost a rounding error. Yeah. And we already have a have a mayor's fund of 50 million a Mm. year. I think having London, the whole of London as Mm. as a participatory city would be an amazing thing. That would be amazing. London's just signed up to this national city park program fantastic which is great yeah you know, it Daniel. is really brilliant yeah you talked earlier about sort of notwithstanding the philosophy and the ideas that sit behind this this is a design challenge what, yeah. what, what are some of the kind of knotty design challenges that you're currently grappling with that you could do with some help with you know maybe someone's listening to this conversation might have some ideas that they could contribute the thing that we're grappling with is we're trying to grow this really rapidly so we've grown our team very rapidly mm. And one of the big challenges is that our team have to learn a new way of working and our residents need to find a new way of working. And that all requires learning. And the learning challenge is everybody's style of learning, their preference of learning, their pace of learning is different. And actually having an ecosystem of thousands of people that we're working with, all who are on their own journey, learning-wise, but also all kinds of wise, means that we have to develop very flexible and really skilled interpersonal capabilities. And we have to be incredibly flexible in ourselves. So I think in terms of the, the team capacity growing and new people coming in and us getting better and better at this field of practice, that is an ongoing, that's a daily challenge that we face. The logistical challenges are that you know, practical participation is a lot to do with spreadsheets and moving boxes around. Yeah. That is a is logistical. There are lots of logistical challenges sure. for doing that. And then there are the the interpersonal thing is is very very important because we're doing some mapping at the moment, um, which I'm hoping will give us all a better sense of what the whole ecosystem is. But we have so many relationships with so many people. Hmm. And they're growing every week. And maintaining those relationships and understanding the map of it even is quite complicated. So it's the challenge of growing an ecosystem and holding this ma- this many relationships, maintaining and nurturing this many relationships at the same time as even holding a mental model of what this ecosystem looks like. There are things
things like the Dunbar number that says you can only a human brain can only hold up to about 150 kind of uh, yeah. strong relationships based on the size of our brains. Is there an equivalent sort of upper limit to the size of a community or a neighbourhood mm. that can truly be participatory? Are you familiar with this idea of 20-minute neighbourhoods that was kind of yeah. fashionable a few years ago? Yeah, it, I, think, it, I, I think proximity is very important, and which is why strategically we're trying to bring the more and more of it closer and closer to where people live to get it completely distributed but it's it's that scaling which is it's really quite hard and also we're trying to we're probably at sort of capacity size for the team on the platform now but we're trying to grow the ecosystem much bigger than that and that's how and how we do that i think is going to be a technical challenge but also a sort of a human art mm-hmm. of how we can help people get to the point of their their confidence where they need less of our actual time so that we can grow new ideas with with new people yeah. that co-production of or element mm-hmm. is really quite challenging for everyone on the team you've obviously been working in design and participation for many years but what in the last two or so years that you've been doing this work here in Barking and Dagenham what's what have you noticed in yourself that you've had to unlearn or change in the way that you work apart from that being a parent <laughs> it's been it's the most challenging couple of years I've, I've ever had and that's been mentally challenging hugely exciting but also yeah just uh, challenging in every single respect and having to design as rapidly as we are and not always executing everything to 100% and actually knowing that that's okay do you know what I mean knowing where to spend your time what things have to be 100% like safety has to be 100% but not everything has to be has to be 100% sometimes it's just okay for things to be good good enough yeah, yeah. good enough um, and I think that's something that I also have to lead by example with the team because everybody wants it to be 100%. And actually, what I have found is that if we're trying to do everything at 100%, what it stops people being, it stops people taking risks. And we can't do that. We can't have that. We just would slow, we'd go grind to halt if people weren't prepared to take risks. So there's all sorts of things in how we organize the team where we are trying to do the first model really of stuff that we hope will will go into the the ecosystem with residents as well things about shared and distributed decision making the human side of the team and the connectivity and how we manage those things is hugely challenging but also couldn't really be more exciting Hmm. from from my mind i was hugely interested in it as well yeah um you probably are as well (laughs) uh oh you're turning the tables no i am well that's why i'm here so roland why are you here (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah. When I was kind of uh, uh, doing a bit of research for, for this conversation, I, I realised, even though I've known you for years, but I hadn't realised that you sort of lived all around the world kind of growing up. And I, t- to a lesser extent than you, but I'd also lived in a number of different places, went to mm. quite a few different schools as a kid. And there was just something about that forces you to make new friends, to build new relationships, to yeah. learn new cultures, new languages, um, literally and metaphorically, yeah. um, in my case, every few years, in your case, by the sounds of it, mm. it, more than that, which is challenging, but also it develops a muscle or a skill or an ability to cope with change, and which I think is useful in this kind of work or, or relevant in this kind of work. 
I don't know, a bit like you, I just think there's something really interesting about this way of working, really necessary. I also agree the public realm is lacking. Um, I guess one question I had for you around that is what has this always been true? Was there a, at some point in the past, I know it's easy to kind of glorify the past, uh, mm. that, that things were all rosy in the, I don't know, the 1950s mm. or the 1850s or mm. whenever you look back. But, you know, was there a time when there was more participation? I mean, I think a lot of the, the sort of the, the practical stuff will always remind people of, you know, wartime Britain where resources were scarce and people had to to do a be much more self-reliant but also much more connected and resourceful and sharing with each other so I think there is a there is a sense of that and I think that people see that and and like it particularly people older generation it's like they've always been waiting for it to come back and where has it been kind of thing but I think that the way that it's the interpretation and and how it's is actually very much of a of its time. I think the majority of projects that we learned from were people probably under thirty five or forty who were essentially rejecting other methods of participation. They didn't want to be in groups and clubs anymore. They didn't want to pay subscription. They didn't want to sit around a table and have a chairman tell them whether they could talk or not. So there's a there's a whole generation which are actually saying that those old forms of participation are not what they want. They want immediacy. They want creativity. They want flexibility. So I think that it's one of the aspects which helps it make it a very unifying type of participation because... I don't think it's stuck in a generation at all. We've got lo- loads of people across all generations um, taking part. But it's also, it's not left-wing, it's not right-wing, it's not top-down or bottom-up. We're trying to create something unique in the centre space. I think we need to do that as a as an aim in order to build this common space for people to, for everyone to be part of it. Mm. Um, so it's that inclusivity, which I think is at the core of what we're trying to do. And I think that speaks to lots of different generations. And everybody wants to live like this. We've got it in the end of one of our films, but even the guy at the fish and chip shop said like, you know, wow, we could really live like this because hmm. it is what, it's a universal thing. It's not a, it's not an extraordinary. And that's what I think will be the, the real magic of it if we can make it work the scale, the scale anyway. Thank you, Tessie, for sharing this really inspiring story of what participatory cities are. I really believe that this foundation is a great model that is creating the space and tools for people to help each other to make their lives better, and that it could be applied far and wide, and I'm personally very excited to be involved. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this fourth episode of On The Edge, and if you have, please can I ask you to rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well, using the hashtag OnTheEdge. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and find more interesting people to talk to and share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a community and platform to help you navigate the uncertainty and complexity of our connected world. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm.